All right, hear the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were, in, were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of, God, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among, among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So here's the reality. A person can be the most talented surgeon in the world, an amazing dad, or a mechanic, or quarterback, or counselor, or teacher, but fail miserably without one key skill. You can be the most, you can have the doctorate from the most prestigious institution that is around the world and yet fail without one key skill. And that skill is the ability to properly diagnose a problem. That is a key skill that you must have. A surgeon needs to know the physical problem and its location in the body. He needs to know that to address the problem. A mechanic needs to know what part is malfunctioning. A quarterback needs to be able to read the defense and be able to, to pass in such a way where he achieves a solution. A counselor needs to identify the root issues. And a teacher needs to know what is hindering kids from truly learning. A faulty diagnosis will inevitably lead to failure. And in some cases, even death. Right? If you, if you can't really diagnose what the problem is, it will only lead to more problems. And there's even a good chance that if you do not diagnose it correctly, it will lead to death. No matter how good or how smart or how experienced you are, if you get the problem wrong, you will only be unhelpful. And you could even make things worse. So the right diagnosis of a problem is absolutely critical. Solutions are useless unless you know what the problem really is. 
Some of you have probably had that where you're, you've got a major thing that is going on in your life and you're, you're sharing your story with your friends or your family, your neighbors, and you're sharing it and, and you, all of a sudden you're starting to get advice from them. It's kind of like Job and his friends sitting around and they're not really addressing what the problem is. And they're giving you advice and you're going, do you even know what the problem is? Are you, have you even been listening? And they're trying to offer solutions because they want to be helpful, Right? And they probably normally give some good advice, but they're totally missing the boat. So being able to identify the problem is absolutely critical. And this is true when it comes to spiritual things as well. And it helps us to understand what we're going to be looking at in our next section of, of Romans. The last two Sundays, we've looked at the, really the overall message of the book of Romans, which is righteousness through the gospel. Righteousness through the gospel. And we've seen the connection between righteousness and faith. Paul is explaining the good news of the gospel to the people in Rome, Rome but for in order for there to be good news, there must also be bad news. If there's good news, there's got to be bad news. So for the next six weeks, we are going to, and I've warned you about this on our first Sunday. I've warned you so you should be able to wrap your head around. For the next six weeks, we are going to be talking about sin. We're going to be talking about depravity. We're going to be talking about the degradation of humanity. Yeah! So Romans 1, uh, verse 18, and all the way through Romans 3.20, talks about the bad news. Aren't you excited? You know? So before you freak out, before you check out, before you kind of find a reason to walk out and say, oh, I've got to go to the bathroom, and, and I see you walk out, I, I want you to know that we are going to be connecting the bad news back to the good news. Because we need to hear that. After all, that's why Paul wrote this book and why he has included such a large section on this problem. He wants you to have an accurate diagnosis of the problem so that you know how to apply the solution correctly to your life. You need to know and study what is the issue with our world and our culture. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with my marriage? What's wrong with my children? What is going on in France? We've got to be able to diagnose the problem properly so that we know how to properly apply the solution. To say it another way, in order for you to know the beauty of the gospel, you need to understand the ugliness of sin. So I hope in this section of Romans that you will love the gospel even more. But I also hope that it explains some of the things to you about yourself about our culture, about suffering, and about the brokenness of the world around us. I hope that as we're coming out of those six weeks of talking about depravity and the fallenness of humanity and the degradation that is going on in our world, that you will feel compelled by the beauty of the gospel to bring hope and light to this broken world. You see, this section of Romans explains the problem that absolutely every human being faces. This section is dark, yet it is extremely helpful.
So our text today, Romans 1, 18 through 25, contrasts, it stands in, on the other side of what we've read in Romans 1, 16 through 17. It's a contrast. It, you got one thing on this side, you got one thing on the other side. Hopefully you're going to remember that Paul's main point in those verses is the connection between righteousness and faith. There's a beautiful righteous thing, the glory of Christ as seen, the glory of God as seen in Christ, and you're just going, this is God made man, and we see his perfect work for humanity, and by faith we respond to that. And it's this beautiful thing. And we see that the righteous live by faith. This means that God's righteousness is given to those who believe, who put their trust in Jesus, who live by faith. Belief, faith, and trust are essentially saying all the same thing. But this text is not about belief. It is not about faith. It is about something else. We need to understand what we're talking about when we're, we talk about righteousness, right? Righteousness means I both have a right standing before God, a right standing before God because of the person and work of Jesus Christ has been applied to me, and it also means that I have the ability through the Holy Spirit to now practice righteousness. A believer in Christ is now empowered to live a righteous life. Yes, it takes work. It's a process of what? Sanctification. Becoming more holy. But it is possible now through Christ. So there's a direct connection between faith and righteousness. And that's going to be important to remember because in the same way that righteousness is connected by faith, right? Righteousness is connected by faith. So too is righteousness connected to unbelief. Righteousness is connected to unbelief. In the ver verses 18 through 25 serve as the introduction to the connection between unbelief and unrighteousness. So we had righteousness and faith. Now we have unrighteousness and unbelief. Two stark things. In fact, skip ahead to verse 25 and see for yourself. What did they do? Because they exchanged the truth of God, about God, for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So notice the connection between believing a lie instead of God and serving the creature rather than the creator. Remember last week when I said ideas have consequences? Well, unbelief has consequences as well. And we can see it very clearly here as well. So we're going to look at this text through the lens of five consequences. Five consequences connected to the tragedy of unbelief. There's five consequences. And here's the first consequence of the tragedy of unbelief. It necessitates the wrath of God. That's the first thing. It, it is not a coincidence that Paul uses the word revealed and unrighteousness in verse 18. These should sound familiar because 
He had just used revealed and righteousness in verse 17 in reference to the gospel. Verse 18 is the direct contrast to the hope found in verse 17. And that is why the word for starts, starts this verse. Paul is going to show us the negative background against which the beauty of the gospel is displayed. He's going to show the darkness so that you can see the beauty and the radiance of the gospel. Paul begins a treatment of this very important issue, this statement about the wrath of God. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against how much? All. All unrighteousness, or all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is shown and revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That, that's, Paul is very good about saying, let me, let me tell you about what I'm talking about. I'm talking about all ungodliness, and I'm talking about all unrighteousness. He doesn't need to say, pick and choose which one. And for some of us, we kind of like to do the pick and choose, right? Well, this isn't as bad as this, not, not so bad as, I know it's not great, I know it's not what I'm supposed to be doing, but Paul says, all ungodliness. He's saying, all unrighteousness. The idea is simply that the activities of unbelief, ungodliness and unrighteousness, brings about the wrath of God. Paul's diagnosis of the problem of humanity is that we are under the wrath of God. You want to know why? why things are going on is because we're under the wrath of God. So now I need to explain, what does this really mean? What, what, when we talk about the wrath of God, it sounds vindictive. It sounds kind of like God is out of control. He's just spiraling out of control with anger issues. And that he's, he, it, quite honestly, God, you're being unrighteous yourself. You've got some anger issues that you need to deal with. But that is not the case. You need to see God's wrath as his holy indignation or his, uh, his, his revols, he's revulsed against sin. He's like, oh, I, I hate sin. He's, he's, his holy indignation. God's wrath is directly connected to his righteousness. His wrath is directly connected to his righteousness. God would not be righteous if moral rebellion against him did not create a divine response. God would no longer be God if he did not respond to unrighteousness in our world. God's wrath is necessary because unbelief and rebellion are real. Real. So you might ask, what does this, what does this wrath of God look like? How is it worked out? In one sense, the wrath of God is certainly the ultimate time, that time in history where judgment of sin is going to be coming in the future, right? We're, we're going to stand before God and we're going to have to give an account for our lives. Are, are we in Christ? Do we view God as our judge now or do we view him as our father? There's going to be that point, point where he's going to lay out and say, what have you done? How have you lived this life? Romans 2 verse 5 makes this pretty clear. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. For who? 
yourself. Yikes. You're storing up for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You're storing it up. It's building up. It's about ready to burst. And on that last day, you are going to have to give an account. However, here in this text, the tense uh, of the word revealed is present tense. Meaning that it is continually happening right now. So the wrath of God is being revealed. It is constantly happening as it's going on. So there are other expressions of wrath of God, the wrath of God in our world today. I can name things like death, illness, and suffering. As we're going to see next week, the wrath of God means that humans live in a world full of sexual immorality, full of covetousness, of malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness, slander in their hearts. They, they are haters of God. They are insolent. They're boastful. They're disobedient to their parents. There's foolishness. There's faithlessness, faithlessness, heartlessness, and ruthlessness. Can't wait for next week, right? In other words, the wrath of God is expressed through a world that is terribly broken. Terribly broken. And is becoming increasingly broken. We can feel it, can't we? If, if you really look at, watch the news, there's not a day where you go, ah, things are going great. It's getting better day by day. No, in fact, in your heart, you feel this tension of what's going to happen next? It feels like it is, it's a snowball effect. So what we need to understand is things are getting worse. They're growing. You need to look at the world and at your own experience in this world through that lens. The world is broken because we have violated the righteousness of God. The world is broken. Because humanity has violated the righteousness of God. Paul's point here is important. You see, God is, is, is not only revealing righteousness through the gospel. He's not a, only showing hope that there's a solution. But he is also revealing his wrath by allowing the brokenness of sin to send us a clear, crystal clear message. God warns us with his wrath, but yet he does what? He woos us by his mercy. He calls us to himself by his love and his kindness. Mercy says, you can't do this on your own. You can't do it. That's what mercy is saying. And problems like, Illness and suffering and death and the degradation of humanity, all expressions of his wrath also say, you can't do this on your own. There is no governmental fix for this. Wherever you stand on the political spectrum, there is no political governmental solution for what is affecting our world. You can't do this on your own. So God speaks both languages. He's, he speaks in the language of wrath. He speaks in the language of mercy. And he's saying in all these things, 
You can't do this on your own. The question is, are we listening? Can we hear? You see, the very first sin in the Garden of Eden has caught, was caused by what? Unbelief. Adam and Eve believed a lie. And the effect was what? Separation from God. They experienced God's revulsion against sin. Unbelief necessitates God's wrath. And that is why, friends, we need the gospel. Not just in the future. We need the gospel now. But it leads to the second thing. The second tragedy of unbelief is this. It leads to the active suppression of the truth. Active suppression. In other words, let's understand this statement in verse 18. And honestly, this section in verse 18 should even make us kind of tremble. When, When Paul describes the people or the men who are committing ungodliness and unrighteousness, he says that they suppress the truth. How? By their own unrighteousness. What in the world does this mean? It means that the truth about who God is, a a truth that is being revealed through God's, God's wrath, is something that mankind in general refuses to believe. The idea is that mercy and the severity of God both declare that God is absolutely real. God is real. And that you cannot run your own life. And and that you need help. That's that's what the severity and the, the kindness and the mercy of God are communicating. You can't do this on your own. God is real. You need help. But what do we do? And you've seen this with your own life. I see this with my life. We naturally resist that thought, don't we? Worse, we even suppress it. And the way that we do this might be by committing acts of unrighteousness. Don't miss this. Our suppression of the truth about God is ongoing. It is active. It is working out. And it works like this. See if this applies to you. We do things that we know are wrong. Apply to any of you so far? We do things that we know are wrong but yet we do them anyway. It moves on to when nothing happens, we somehow feel empowered or justified. Right? I didn't get zapped by lightning. I'm going to keep on moving. And then we do it again and again and again and again and again, and again. And in a strange and sick way, our unrighteous deeds convince us that we are not, what we're doing, that unrighteousness, is not really that bad. It's really not that bad. Even though when you look back on your life, It's hard to believe you could think that way. Unrighteousness does what? It suppresses truth. And at its very core, it is unbelief. 
you believe that you are right and somehow God is wrong. You know better. God's mistaken. And the unbelief in your soul about God leads you to kind of tamp down what you should know to be truth. You kind of tamp it down, you kind of pat it down, just not so much. Let's, let's kind of push it out of the way. And this is why the sinful acts that we commit are not just little tiny indiscretions. They are an insurgent attempt to silence the rational and right thought. And this is what, what, it, what is being, being tamped down. That God is not going to be okay with this, and I'm not going to get away with this. But we like to tamp that down and just say, it's not really that big of a deal. And we keep pushing down the idea that God's not going to be okay with this, but it's going to be, just push it down. He's not going to be okay with this, and I'm not going to get away with it. But I keep suppressing the truth and pushing it down. And this is why sin is never static. The activity of unrighteousness temporarily silences your very senses, your nerves of God's authority in your life. That's, that's what's happening. And it, it, for, for a few seconds or for a few minutes, for a few years, you think that you are actually God. You know better than God himself. We know that we are not God. But our sin seems to say, Oh, yes, you are. And keep living like it. Now, this is yet another reason why we need the gospel, friends. We do not just need a behavior change. We need a complete reorientation of our hearts is what we really need. But it doesn't always stop there. Another tragedy of unbelief is, is it causes this inexcusable denial of God. You see this in verses 19 through 20. And this is the third effect that, of unbelief. There's a denial of God even though everything seems to point to Him. Even though everything around me, Scripture, the Word of God, nature, the brokenness in our world, all those things seem to point to God, what do we do? We it's, there's an inexcusable denial of Him. Verses 19 and 20 can, seem to link two important concepts. One, the knowledge of God. And two, the plain evidence about God. So this is clearly stated in uh, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain, plain to them, because God has shown it to them. This is part of the mercy of God. God has made, it is absolutely clear, clear about who he is. Throughout creation, through the word, through, through the world that we're living in, God has made it clear that who he is, the knowledge about it, God. But the Bible tells us that God has revealed himself to the very world. In theological terms, this is called general revelation. Write that down. you got another little theological definition for your notebook. General revelation. And it is defined as the knowledge of God's existence, his character, and moral law, which comes through creation, not this, 
through creation to humanity. General revelation is always secondary. This is primary for us. So the idea is simply that human beings should be able to look at the created world, be able to look at history and the consequences within them and realize God is real. I don't know how many of you have ever been at the birth of a child and all of a sudden there's the first thing that goes through your head of there's got to be a God. Holding this child brings people to their knees and just, I can't believe it. This is beautiful. How? Or storms or, or just going on vacations and walking alongside a beach and you're going, look at that sunset. That is, there's got to be a God. And verse 20 reiterates this point by driving home the connection between the created world and the, the, the character of God for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So ever since the world's been made, God has been revealing his character, his attributes, things that you can't see about God are made clear just through creation, the way that this world is. In other words, God has provided an absolutely sufficient set of evidence for himself in creation, absolutely sufficient, that says he is here. The beauty, the complexity, the, the creativity, the interconnectedness of creation all point to a creator. It takes a lot of work, often done in the name of science, to deny God's existence. And even in that so-called science, there are huge leaps of faith. Huge. Creation was meant to awaken humanity's soul and mind to God's very existence so that the gospel could bring us into fellowship with him. Unbelief is at the core of looking at creation and thinking, God didn't do this. It's not just a science problem, it's a belief problem. It's a heart issue. Creation clarifies that God exists and the effect is that no one can say, I didn't know you were real God. So on the contrary, they are without excuse, according to Romans 1, uh, verse, 1 verse 20. Everyone is without excuse. So the unbelieving denial of God is inexcusable. Creation says there is a God. But it leads us to the next tragedy. It starts to degrade into self-worship. It, it slides us, this unbelief of slide relates to what human beings think about themselves. Now it starts to move inward. And it's not a pretty picture. Unbelief leads to a perversion of worship. Unbelief leads to more and more unbelief. 
Or as Luther says, it leads to a whole whirlpool of vices. Self-worship, me at the center, it's about me and my living, my comfortableness, not submitting to God's rule and reign in this world and my life, not responding to Him as revealed in the gospel, leads to a whole whirlpool of vices, all kinds of brokenness. And Luther believed that there were at least four steps in this whirlpool of vices, this building tension. The first is just plain old ingratitude. You see that in verse 21. For all they, although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to Him. There was no connection between the gift that God gives and the giver. There was ingratitude in their heart. So it starts off with ingratitude, but then it moves on in verse 21, and they became futile in their thinking. Vanity. There, there's a point that... There's a point where one seeks oneself, seeks after them. They seek after their own profit, their own glory, their own advantage, their own comfort. You start looking in the mirror and saying, I love that, and whatever that is, I want to give more, so that is happier. And it starts leading to more and more painfulness. And without God as your reference point, you lose your bearings and you don't even realize it. The whirlpool moves faster and faster and it becomes more furious. It leads next to, as Luther says, to blindness. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So part of the tragedy is the irony of the arrogance of people who truly think that they are wise. When, when in reality, they're absolutely foolish. They're blind to the reality of what is going on. This is a symptom of spiritual blindness that has set in. This is often the stage where they willfully desert God's truth. And they act out of their own affections, out of their own thoughts, out of their own knowledge. They're unable to discern what is real and what is true. There is a blindness that has darkened their minds. Even though they think they're wise. Even though they think they know what's best. The darkness has beset their minds and their hearts. Which leads for Luther to the fourth thing where he calls it idolatry, or just a pure-out departure. Verse 20 says, And they ultimately did what? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Don't, don't miss what... the let the words of verse 23 kind of pass you by because some of you are going, oh, that doesn't sound like me or anybody I know. I don't know anybody who's worshiping birds or animals or creeping things or reptiles or you name it. I don't see, I don't know any friends who do those kind of things. So I don't know anybody in this category. There, what Paul is saying is there is a decision to absolutely disregard and undervalue, undervalue the glory of God when it is compared to the glory of man and created order. 
the ultimate degradation happens here as mankind, men and women, assess God's glory and God's worth, God's truth, His character, and they say it's inferior and it is less desirable. It doesn't meet their needs. In fact, what is more beautiful and more desirable is the attractiveness and the worth of what I see in the mirror. That is more beautiful than God. That is more desirable than God Himself. I have exchanged the glory of God for me. My wants, my needs, my desires. I'm more important. And I am going to, yes, that is you worshiping you. You The inexpressible glory of the immortal God has been traded for the love of their own reflection. They could have had the Son in that moment, but yet they chose a matchstick instead. Fleeting, far less power, far less heat. They chose a matchstick instead of the inexpressible glory of the immortal God. They chose a matchstick. And do you know what is really crazy about this? According to verse 22, they thought that they were so wise in making this choice. I thought I had it together. I know what's good. And, and Paul said, you aren't as wise as you think you are. Their unbelief is what has deluded them to this point of degradation. Their unbelief in God. Remember Romans 1.25? It said this, because they exchanged the truth of God for a, a lie. A lie. And worshipped and served the creature themselves, their wants, their needs, their desires, instead of the Creator who is forever to be blessed. Amen. So the natural condition of mankind is such that unbelief ultimately leads to self-worship, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And this is the core of the problem that the Bible correctly di diagnoses for us. This is the core of it. Our lack of gratitude, our self-deception, our blindness, our reckless behavior is ultimately rooted in the love of self. Love of self. And boil. All, every sin that you know of, every, every wrong desire that humanity has, and you will see, like it or not, self-deification. Making yourself to be God. The love and worship of self is at the front, the friends, is at the heart of our rebellion against God. This is why, you see, the Bible talks about the heart and the way that the gospel can change a person. This is why Jesus told that rich young ruler that he needed to be 
born again. Born again. And it is why he told his disciples that whatever comes out of the mouth ultimately proceeds from the, the heart. Our unbelief degrades down to self-worship. So you look at your friends, your neighbors, your, yourself, and you go, why am I doing this? It's because I, I'm worshiping myself. They're worshiping themselves. They are seeing themselves as God, whether they realize it or not. That is what is going on in our world. It's no wonder that Paul then connects the gospel with power, right? The righteousness of God that, that comes to you by faith does what? It creates a whole new orientation of your heart, your life, your mind, your values. It changes absolutely everything. You are now in the righteousness of Christ that comes by faith. You are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to live differently. Which results, this change results in new desires. It creates new thinking. It creates new actions and these new actions are always contrary to the world always second corinthians 5 17 and 18 therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation for the old has gone but the new has come old is gone you are in christ the old is gone you are a new creation behold you are new New, not partially. You're a new creation. All this is from God, it says. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry now of reconciliation. So how are you new, friends? At the core, your core, you are no longer putting faith in yourself. You are putting your faith in Christ Jesus. In the very essence of your soul, at the very root of who you are, you understand who you are in Christ and who God ultimately is. And when that belief system, that understanding of God all lines up with a biblical framework, everything changes. Everything just as the wrath of God was coming against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, as the gospel impacts you, it changes all of you. There's not one little cell that it does not change, not one way of thinking and living that it does not change you. You, you think differently, you act differently, you feel differently, and it's all because you come to know the truth, and the truth has ultimately set you free. You've come to believe in Jesus, and by believing, you have life in his name. But if you do not believe, friends, if you do not believe, it leads to consequences, which ultimately brings us to the fifth one. Verses 24 and 25 shows us the result. It results, the tragedy of unbelief results in self-destruction. There were other effects and other consequences going on, right? 
But this is ultimately where it leads. The previous verses mostly contained uh, the, the references to what humans have done in their unbelief. But Paul introduces a term that shows what God does in response to human unbelief. And this is, this is the thing that scares me. And this is one of the things that I have wrestled with this entire week. And, it, you know, preaching is not just for you. The preaching is also speaks to my soul. And it scares the living daylights out of me. And this phrase that should make us tremble is that God gave them up. If that doesn't scare you, I don't know what, what does. Next week, we're going to kind of really unpack the full extent of, of what this is expressed, particularly, particularly in the area of sexuality, because Paul gives this example. And, and I, I hope to show you why Paul raises this issue of sexuality and then show you how he applies that same logic in other areas as well. But for today, in preparation for next week, I want you to understand the meaning of God gave them up. There, there are a few things that I just want you to know about this phrase. First, it is directly, directly tied to the exchange of unbelief. Directly tied to it. We, we began our study by looking at verse 25, which identified for us the problem of unbelief uh, and unrighteousness. In other words, they, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This connection is so important that Paul makes it very clear in verse 24 with the word therefore and beginning in verse 25 with the word because. This is what happens when unbelief takes root in your life. When it takes over. Because of this, God hands you over, gives you up. Second, God's judgment on unbelief is to allow human beings to do what they want. God, God hands them over to their sin, allowing their disobedience to run its destructive course. God hands them over. Paul uses this term three times uh, close together in Romans 1 to make the point evident. You see it in verse 24, 26, and 28. And the most apparent consequence of unbelief is God is removing any restraint that he may have been placing on them. God is removing restraint and allowing people, just allowing them to follow the sinful desires of their heart. Now think about this for a moment, would you? And see how it fits into this argument of Romans. Paul is making the case for the need of the gospel. You need the gospel. And showing us that works will not work. And to make the point even more clear, he shows us that the ultimate expression of our sinfulness is the way in which we are pursuing our own destruction. Here, here's another way to say it. When man attempts to escape from God into freedom, whatever that freedom might be, the result is he really falls fully, headlong 
falls, falls prey into the forces of corruption. When you say, I want to be free, I want to do what I want, this feels good, it seems right in my own heart and in my own mind, in my own logic, I want to be free to do whatever I want to. Ultimately, what you are doing in that freedom is falling headfirst into the force of corruption and death. Do you understand what this really means? It means that when sin becomes easier and more expansive and more creative and more risky and more frequent... Because that's really what happens with sin, right? I thought I could get away with it. And it only gets more powerful and more creative and more hidden, more destructive and all those kind of things. Ultimately, when all those things happen, you are not experiencing freedom. You might think you are, but you're not experiencing freedom. You're actually experiencing God's judgment. It means that in your unbelief, in our unbelief, is the worth of God's glory and And we make a a choice that is absolutely insane. We choose ourselves over God. And in making that choice of ourselves over the glory of God, we walk a path of intentional self-destruction. In the pursuit of worshiping ourselves and deifying ourselves, what are we doing? We're ultimately destroying ourselves. If you're not convinced... If you're not convinced, just think what would happen if you said whatever you wanted to, committed any action that you had in mind, spent whatever money on whatever you desired, or just basically did whatever you wanted to do without any thought of moral, morality, or consequences. Where would that lead you? sure you know someone and maybe it's even you who has pursued this kind of life for a while you know how tragic it is as you've watched their life spiral out of control and they don't even realize it it's spiraling out of control and all you are watching is destruction broken Relational destruction, financial destruction, physical destruction, emotional destruction. They're spiraling out of control. But do you know what is underneath their self-destruction? It is ultimately unbelief in God. That is what it is. They've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Everything is tied back to this matter of belief or worship. The the self-destructive patterns in a person's life are just the expression of, of a worship problem. That is why the book of Romans is so helpful. It helps us to properly diagnose the real issue of humanity, of the world, and of our culture. But there's got to be a solution, right? If I say, this is the word of the Lord, and then I just walk on out after this, you're going, really? The reason that Paul writes this kind of material all the way through Romans 3, verse 20, is to point us away from ourselves and point us ultimately to the, the gospel. 
My aim in walking through this text is to help you see yourself, your actions, and the gospel more clearly. I want you to see yourself for who you are. And there are some of you here today, friends, who by your actions and the ease with which you are disobeying God, you are thinking that you are getting away with it. You might have begun thinking, this really isn't a big issue. Chillax, Paul. It's not that big of a deal. My life is turning out okay and it's only going to get better. And I'm here to tell you, you are believing a lie. You are on a path of self-destruction in this life and eternity. And friends, I want to plead with you to see the path that you are on for what it really is. The first step is to see for all of us, is to see ourselves and the problem absolutely clear. We, we've come to the realization that the real problem in our life is our sin. This deeply embedded passion to be our own God. To run our own lives. That is ultimately the problem. And everything flows from that belief. Our unbelief of God, friends, has consequences. Your life, their lives, the lives in the world... Our belief or unbelief has consequences. And finally, this is why the gospel is such good news. This is good news. So let me share the gospel about Jesus Christ. Really, with that kind of passion? Let me tell you about Jesus. The good news is the gospel. It means that by realizing our problems, we can put our faith in the work of of Jesus Christ. We can come to terms with the fact that we need a change so fundamental, so deep, so transformative that only God can do it. You see, the problem of our sin, why our sin is so deluding and so destructive is because it takes the power of God to eclipse sin's attraction and effect takes God's power to eclipse the sin and its power. Friends, yes, we need to be saved from ourselves. But more importantly, we need to be saved from the wrath of God. And Romans 1 helps us see that more. Friends, that's why when we come to the Lord's, Lord's Supper, you are commanded to examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Do you believe in the gospel? Or have you so deluded yourself? Have you become caught up in self-worship and my needs, my wants, over God? Have you started worshiping the creation instead of the creator? And at that point, we say, do not come to the table. Do not, if you are choosing to live an unrepentant life, do not 
come to the table. We've talked about the righteousness of, uh, uh, the righteousness of God that comes by faith. But the wrath of God is against all, all forms of ungodliness and all forms of unrighteousness. Friends, I want to warn you. Be aware. That doesn't mean you have to be perfect. Because <laughs> then no one comes up. But it does mean that we examine ourselves and we, we, we come re become real and say, uh-uh. That's not right. God, I repent of my ways. And it's not just I'm sorry. I repent and I'm, I'm choosing today by the power of the Spirit who is living with, inside of me, who is guiding in me and revealing things to me. I'm choosing to go another direction. I'm choosing to go towards you instead of choosing to go down this path of self-destruction. If that is true of you, you are welcome to the Lord's Supper. If you are choosing to go on an unrepentant path of a hardened heart, of self-worship, friends, meditate on the gospel. Think clearly about the gospel. Think clearly about the glory of God. The immortal God. Who is forever to be praised. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you trembling knowing that you are a God of mercy. Oh, you are a God of mercy. But you also speak the language of wrath, both of which point us to you. Help us, Lord, as we hear sermons like this to be compelled to embrace and to love the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that you have provided a pathway for us. God, help us to feel so compelled to not only embrace it, but to live into it. And not only to live into it, but to live out the effects of it, to live a holy life, one that is becoming more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And God, not only more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, but one that is willing to communicate the beauty and the splendor of the gospel to, the, to a lost and perishing world. God, would you transform us, this church, these people, myself included, God, would you transform us from one degree of glory to another. this we pray in the mighty saving powerful name of Jesus